0: Welcome to PwC's weekly accounting podcast series. I'm Heather Horn. In today's episode, we will continue our discussion of accounting issues in the current environment, focusing on debt-related matters. Suzanne Stefani, a director in PwC's national office, is back with me in the studio to provide her insights. We have a lot to discuss, so let's jump in. So Suzanne, welcome back to the studio. Thank you. Uh, happy to have you back to talk about debt from a borrower's perspective. But before we jump into that, Suzanne, I know that U.S. corporations have spent the past decade taking on more debt than ever. So can you just lay the groundwork for where things stand from a corporate debt perspective?
1: Sure. So like you said, debt is at an all-time high now. Um, I actually just saw a recent article that quoted a report from the organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD. And they said the volume of corporate debt at the end of 2019 actually hit about $13.5 trillion. So that's trillion
0: with a T. That's a lot of zeros.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and so likely that's probably that increase is coming from the low interest rate environment that we've seen for a while now. And actually it could continue to build up now with the um, most recent interest rate cuts that we just saw as well. So one of the other things they observed in the OECD report was that today's outstanding corporate bonds, they're generally of lower credit quality as compared to what we've seen in the past. So what they observed was if there were to be some sort of you know, economic downturn, we would likely see default rates on debt that it would be higher than in previous economic downturns. And this is actually consistent too with some remarks made by um, Janet Yellen, so the former Federal Reserve Chair back in February. She was kind of also asked about this potential fallout if the US economy slows down, and she also singled out corporate high corporate debt levels as kind
0: of a worry as well. Suzanne, I think that's helpful background and especially when you talk about the numbers of the amount of debt that's out there. Mm -hmm. And if we kind of look ahead and think about the uncertainty with the coronavirus and the current volatility that we're seeing in the economy, I think companies may have more questions around Mm -hmm. some debt topics like covenants and potentially debt restructurings. So in today's podcast, I thought we could first focus on covenant violations and then move on to troubled debt restructurings. Mm -hmm. I know we've previously talked about Mm non-troubled debt restructurings. So starting with debt covenant violations, what are some of the common covenants that companies may have in their debt agreements that could be impacted by earnings? Yeah. So there's,
1: of course, all debt agreements can have right of covenants and they're unique, um, but there's some that a lot of companies tend to have like a debt service coverage ratio. Um, You also have interest coverage ratios and also pretty common is a fixed charge coverage ratio. So generally a debt agreement will have some sort of ratio for that set in their agreement. And if the number goes higher than that ratio, then it's a covenant violation and the debt would be... um,
0: put The key here is to look for these types of ratios, and obviously yeah. each agreement can have different ones mm-hmm. and different ways to calculate them. And so then, Suzanne, if companies think that they're potentially going to violate one of these covenants or actually any other covenant in their mm-hmm. debt agreement, how should they think about this? And I know there's different rules depending if you have a violation at the balance sheet date or after the balance sheet date. So let's start first with if at the balance sheet date, I have a violation. Yep, so if you actually violated
1: the covenant at the balance sheet date, of course the debt would be current if you didn't get a waiver, you know, you couldn't get one, and there's no grace period in the, in the debt agreement to cure it. You get a waiver, it's not automatically non-current. You have to think about two things. One, you look at the waiver itself. The lender has to give up its right to force repayment for that particular covenant violation for at least 12 months from the balance sheet. So you have to have that. And then the next thing you have to do is a probability assessment. So you would ask yourself, is it probable that I'm gonna fail this covenant or some more restrictive covenant again within 12 months from the balance sheet date? So if it's probable that you will fail the covenant again in the next 12 months, then the, the debt has to be current, even if a waiver is received. If you think it's just reasonably possible that you'll meet it, then the debt would be
0: non-current. I think for a lot of people, you get your waiver and you think, okay, I'm good, Mm -hmm. I'm done, but obviously that's not the case. And one of the things I think is interesting there is, even if that covenant is waived for the next 12 months, Mm -hmm. you may have an issue if you expect to trip that covenant in the future. Can you explain that a little more?
1: Yeah, sure. So maybe helpful if I give an example. So say you calculated your debt service coverage ratio at 331 and it was too high. So there was a covenant violation at 331. So you'd have to look out the next four quarters to see if you're going to violate that debt service coverage ratio again. And if you do think, let's say you think you're going to violate it again at 630, then the debt has to be current, but even if the lender you know, waived its right for 12 months for that 331 violation. Like, it still has the right to come back, even though you have that waiver. Just to be clear, that waiver was just for the 331 violation. So if the covenant is failed again at 630, the lender has the right to come back
0: and ask for repayment at that time. So basically, they have to waive that covenant for the next 12 months in order, if you think it's probable. Take it away. Yeah, they have to take it away, okay. So let's go on then to our other case, which is Mm -hmm. that I actually met my covenant at March 31, Mm -hmm. but looking ahead, I think I may not meet it for the next quarter.
1: Okay, yeah, so say, you know, at the balance sheet date, 3:31. You meet the covenant, you meet the debt service coverage ratio, but before you issue the financials, you believe that you're going to fail that debt service coverage ratio at 630. You already know likely it's coming, maybe with your forecasts or whatever. So, with that case, the debt would be non current at the balance sheet date, but you should disclose the
0: future non compliance in your. 331 financial statements. Okay, so making sure you keep your financial statement users informed. Right. So why don't we move to our next topic, which is subjective acceleration clauses, and it's something we've talked about on previous podcasts and webcasts, Mm -hmm. but I know a lot of debt agreements have these, and they can impact debt classification, and they can be a bit tricky because it's not always obvious what they are. So can you... Before we talk about the accounting, can you just explain what it is and how you can look for it?
1: Sure, yeah, it comes in a variety of forms. And so that's the problem, right? It's not labeled or highlighted. Subjective yes. acceleration clause. Look at me, look at me. <laughs> <laughs> so it comes in a variety of forms and is called can be called a few different things. Um, but one key point to remember is most debt agreements, they do have them, so really look out for them. One common way it comes across a lot is um, it'll be labeled something like an event of default is a material adverse change in the business. And the problem is material adverse change in the business, it's not usually something that's defined in the agreement. So it's kind of open, it's, it's subjective. So for example, let's say you know, we have a company, they have a debt agreement with a subjective clause like that that says a material adverse change is an event of default. And say they lose one of their major customers um, as of the balance sheet date. The company might not think that's a material adverse change because maybe they have other plans going on or or whatnot. But, but the bank, when they find out about it, they might think that is a material adverse change and call it an event of default and have the right to require the company to repay the debt. So you can see how it's kind of subjective, like two parties could have a different view of what it is. It's not really black and white, like the debt service coverage ratio I was talking about earlier where the debt agreement kind of says like, you know, calculate it like this. It's just more,
0: it's more judgmental. So it's it's harder to get a handle on. Hence the name subjective acceleration clause. So if you have one of these clauses, Mm -hmm. how should you think about it at the balance sheet date?
1: Yeah. So at each balance sheet date, you have to make a probability assessment to determine if you think it's probable that the lender is going to force you to repay that debt based on some subjective clause. So if you think it's probable of happening, then the debt should be classified as current as of the balance sheet date. So it might be probable, some might think it's probable if a borrower has had recurring losses or some sort of liquidity problems, or if there's some you know, significant major event that has happened that impacts the company. Now, if you think it's just reasonably possible that the lender could, could exercise its rights under the SAC. Then just disclosure of the existence of the SAC is generally enough, and the debt doesn't have to be current and then of course, if it's you know if you think it's remote it's not going to happen, then you know no nothing is is required so it really depends on on your assessment of probability at as, as you, you know prepare your financials
0: right so I think the key here is this is something make sure you understand them if you If they are in your debt agreements and then monitor them Mm -hmm. okay so then let's move on to our next topic which would be debt restructurings and obviously they can happen for a variety of reasons and we've talked in previous podcasts about the fact that there's a lot of nuances to think about if you're dealing with a non-troubled debt restructuring but we skipped right over the topic of troubled debt restructuring so i thought it'd be helpful for you to talk about that today so why don't we start things off with the accounting model for TDR and then we can talk about how you figure out if you have one.
1: Yeah, sure. So it's important to think about TDR accounting first when you have a debt restructuring. So by debt restructuring, I mean you have an existing lender and you go to that lender and you make some sort of change to your agreement and you need to analyze that. So the first thing you need to do is think about if it's a troubled debt restructuring And we'll get into how to do that in a minute, but just wanted to first kind of frame the impact. So the TDR model can, in some cases, give you a very different answer than a non-troubled debt restructuring. So it's really important to think about that first. So let me just try to explain kind of what the model is. What the model does is it compares the carrying value of the original debt to the future undiscounted cash flows of the new debt. So if those future undiscounted cash flows are more than the carrying value, you're not going to have any gain and you're going to adjust your interest rate going forward and, and disclose that you have a troubled debt restructuring. If the future undiscounted cash flows are less than the carrying value, a gain is taken, but you're only writing the carrying value of the debt down to the future undiscounted cash flow amount. So basically the carrying value of the debt, it's set at, the amount of all the future undiscounted cash flows, including the interest. And then any payments going forward, you're just reducing that balance. You actually have no interest expense going forward. So, what it does, it really holds off a lot of gain that you would get had you not had a
0: troubled debt restructuring. So it really limits the gain. Yeah, much different accounting model potentially then. Okay, so obviously very important to understand if you have a troubled debt Mm -hmm. restructuring. So how do you figure that out? Yeah, so to
1: have a troubled debt restructuring, you need to have two things. The borrower needs to be experiencing financial difficulty and the lender has to have granted that borrower a concession. So you need those two things. So figuring out if a company is experiencing financial difficulties is a qualitative analysis and you're looking at the creditworthiness of the company. Sometimes it can be a little bit judgmental. And then the concession calculation is more just the math, right? So being an accountant, I like to do the math first. because yep, me too. It's black and white. Out. You can figure that out. And if, if you don't have a concession, you don't have to worry about the kind of more judgmental, yep. qualitative analysis. But everybody's different and, you know, some find it easier to do the other analysis first. But I'm going to start with the concession calc. So how you figure out if the lender is granted a concession. Basically, you schedule out all the cash flows of the new debt, so the principal and interest and any contingent payments, basically any payment that you would possibly have to make under that debt agreement. And you solve for the rate that gets back to the carrying value of the original debt. So it sounds kind of complicated, but it's really not. If you use a spreadsheet, you could just schedule out the cash flows and use some sort of IRR function to get get the rate. So you get that rate, and then you compare it to the effective rate of the old debt. And if that calculated rate is lower than the effective rate of the old debt,
0: then you have a concession. Okay, so this actually is very straightforward. Okay, so Suzanne, I know one question we get in making this calculation is how the fair value factors into it, because in most cases if the lender is willing to give a concession then mm-hmm. you would at least assume that the fair value is lower than the carrying amount so do you need to take that into account in making any of these calculations no
1: so actually this test is really just based on contractual cash flows only so you're right usually the lender is going to give a concession if the fair if the debt is basically trading pretty low like the fair value is very low and it might actually be that The new debt that they're getting in the restructuring has a higher fair value, so so kind of economically they want to do it to kind of increase their value, but it doesn't get factored in here. It's really just looking at the contractual cash flows, and if you cut down your contractual rights under the then it's going to be a concession. concession, Okay,
0: that's helpful. You just focus on contractual terms, right? And then going back to the definition of a troubled debt restructuring, you have to have a concession Mm -hmm. end the borrower has to be in financial difficulty. So now we get to the more subjective Mm -hmm. part. How do you determine if the company is experiencing financial difficulty? Right, so next you need to assess financial difficulty. So we're gonna look at if a
1: borrower is experiencing financial difficulty. So there's specific guidance that indicates when a borrower is not experiencing financial difficulty. So I would look at that first. So it says if the borrower is currently servicing their debt, and they're able to obtain funding from other sources at the same effective interest rate as a non-troubled debtor, and the restructuring is solely only due to decreases in market rates or positive changes in credit worthiness, then the transaction is not a TDR. So that's a gating thing, but that would only happen, you know, in some
0: cases. yeah. Yeah,
1: like the lender would the borrower could probably go somewhere else and get this rate, so the lender just says, okay, let me do it for you, because I know you can go do it somewhere else, right. get the money, and pay me like
0: off. What like what happens with people's mortgages Yeah, sometimes.
1: so they figure they might as well work with them, but yeah. but if it's not because of the own, only those things, then you should, you, know, you need to look further, and the guidance gives you indicators of financial difficulty. It lists out certain factors to consider. So one, are you currently in default on your debt? Have you declared or in the process of declaring bankruptcy? Is there any sort of significant doubt about going concern? Have you delisted your securities or is there a pending or, or threatened delisting or forecasted cash flows are insufficient to service the original debt? So that's really a big one, but it's usually the default and forecasted cash flows insufficient to service the original debt that you know really is probably the reason why the lender is trying to give this company a better deal and kind of work with them because they know they're not able to service the debt. But like I said, these are just indicators. There could be other factors to think about. It's really just somewhat judgmental. And all the factors kind of have to be weighted. It's not like you have to have all of those to have a financial difficulty. You could just have one. It's really, you know, thinking about your credit worthiness as a company and where you were when you issued the debt as a compared to now and, and has it gone down. And the way I like to look at it and the reason I like to do the concession first is, you know, if I do the concession calc and there's a concession, to me, it seems that there's a presumption that the company must be experiencing financial difficulties. Otherwise, why would a third party lender come in and, and give you this deal? If right. you weren't experiencing financial difficulty, unless of course, like I said before, there's some sort of, you know, market change that or credit worthiness change that's helping
0: you. Right. So basically, if you don't get through the gate that you're not experiencing mm-hmm. financial difficulty and you have a concession, then you have to look hard at whether or not you are having financial right. difficulty. Right. Okay. And then in that case, then you would go down the path of following the county for troubled debt restructuring. Otherwise, you should listen to our other podcast to hear about other restructurings and modifications. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then, Suzanne, let's move on to another topic where I know we get a lot of questions, which is on related party debt restructurings. And this would be focusing on debt that's held by an equity holder of the company. And there can be various reasons that an equity holder might be more willing to restructure debt, which in some cases could include that the company is having financial difficulty. Mm-hmm. So what should companies think about when they're looking at debt that's restructured with a related party? Again, focus on the borrower.
1: Yeah, so the key thing to think about is whether or not any extinguishment gain associated with a related party debt restructuring should be treated as a capital transaction. In other words, whether the gain should go through equity as a capital contribution instead of income. And there's no specific guidance on this. There is some guidance that says, you know, a transaction with an extinguishment transaction with a related party may be, in essence, a capital transaction. So it's kind of vague, and it it takes some judgment. But, But generally, if all of the debt holders have equity interests in the company, any gain, it's usually considered a capital transaction. And that's because it's really hard to figure out You know, when someone's a debt holder and an equity holder, and they give the company a good deal, like Mm -hmm. they let the debt be extinguished at a gain, you have to ask yourself, why are they doing that? I mean... Right, isn't that in
0: essence a contribution?
1: Helping themselves with the equity contribution. Now, it gets a little more complicated when only some of the debt holders are also equity holders. So you have a mix. Like, say you have a syndicate of debt holders. Some are just regular, let's say, banks or something, and some are equity holders. So you really have to think about those. So to make that determination of, you know, whether the gain should be, go through income or through equity for those particular equity holders, you should think about the reason that the equity holder agreed to that restructuring. Were they trying to protect their equity investment or were they really just going along with everybody else, with all the other lenders? Um, And really key is, you know, whether other debt holders that don't own equity, did they get the same deal? You know, because if they get the same deal, it, it seems like, you know, maybe there really wasn't some sort of special treatment because of, the equity interest and even just think about how large of a percentage of the company does that equity hold their own the more they own the more Good
0: question um, there is
1: yeah the more
0: incentivized they are to give the company a better deal which may indicate capital transaction okay so Suzanne these have been great points and I think probably fair to say as a summary like many things are all things in accounting Mm -hmm. the key here is going to be to understand your transaction make sure you have all the facts and clearly to make sure you've read all your agreements so if someone's been listening to this and now wants to understand more or has more questions where is the best place to go look
1: um for the debt restructuring stuff, the troubled debt or any debt restructuring, including the related parties, I would look at chapter three of our financing guide. And then for any debt classification related um, information, I'd look at chapter 12 of our financial statement presentation guide.
0: Okay. So Suzanne, before we wrap things up, I want one fun fact for our audience. You've been my visitor (laughs) for debt, cash flow and leases. So what's your favorite topic? Hmm. Yeah, I'm gonna have to say debt. Oh, I- well, is that because of today's podcast or do you have a better reason? No, <laughs> <laughs> it's because I think I've dealt with it
1: the longest and I, I just, I enjoy answering questions about debt.
0: Great, thanks for joining me today. Sure. Don't miss next week's episode when we wrap up all the quarter's issues with the Quarter Close Audio Edition. In addition, for more quarterly accounting information, I'm hosting our quarterly accounting webcast tomorrow. Please join our live webcast on March 18th, March 24th, or April 2nd, or look for the replay available on cfodirect.com. To make sure you never miss a podcast episode, subscribe to this series wherever you listen to your podcast. And I'd love to hear from you, so write to me at heather.horn at pwc.com Or to stay up to date on the latest content, let's connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved.